Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 31. But before we jump into that, I just wanted to say a real quick thank you to all of you who donate to make the listener's commentary possible. Uh, Literally, this ministry could not happen without you, so thanks a ton for your support. We still need about 30% more income in order to meet minimum monthly need. And so if you want to support the listener's commentary, you can do so uh, through the donate page on the website. There is a link down in the notes below, or you can just go to listenerscommentary.com slash give, listenerscommentary.com slash give, and you can set up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation right there on that page. All right, in this session, we will be looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 31. And this section flows directly out of the preceding one. In the preceding section, Jesus has just said, you can't serve God and money. And he's called disciples to be faithful in how they use money, specifically using it for eternal ends and eternal goals. All of this reminds us that God is king. And money or wealth is is a trust from God. It's not just a mere possession. It's something entrusted to people by God to be used according to his will. And it's something that people will be accountable for how they use it. Do they use it faithfully uh, and righteously? Or do they use it unrighteously and unfaithfully? Well, some of the Pharisees are listening to Jesus as he teaches all of this. And they began to scoff at him. And that's what sets up this next section. Here's an overview of it. Some Pharisees, as I noted, scoff at Jesus' teaching on money and using it for God's purposes and serving God and not money. Well, Jesus responds to them. First, he responds by emphasizing the priority and importance of God's kingdom and how God's kingdom doesn't nullify the values of the Old Testament law. That then leads to a parable where Jesus illustrates what the love of money looks like, and he does so almost, it seems like, in dramatic caricature, right? He makes it so dramatic it's obvious because we're so blind to it that Jesus wants to make it totally obvious. So he gives this parable that illustrates what the love of money looks like, and it illustrates that if someone doesn't listen to the law on this topic about money and God and how to use it, they're not going to listen to Jesus. And if they don't listen to Jesus, well, that's because they don't listen to the law. So really, that's what this whole section revolves around is this topic of love of money and what the law says about it and how that's in sync with what Jesus says about it. So let's begin in verse 14. It says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were ridiculing him. So they're scoffing at Jesus for what he has just said in the preceding verses about you can't serve God and mammon, that you need to be righteous with how you use your money. And notice the way verse 14 reads. It sounds like all Pharisees were lovers of money. That's probably not the intent, and that's really not a fair description, because not all Pharisees were. Uh, But Some were, and that's the point here. There are some Pharisees in the crowd who were listening to Jesus, and those particular Pharisees were lovers of money. They were listening to what Jesus said, and then they were ridiculing him. They were scoffing him. And you see, in their culture, wealth primarily was tied to the land. It grew out of 
owning land and renting out land and all that. So wealth is tied to the land, and land was viewed as a gift or a blessing from God. And so it was really easy to get all of that twisted around in your own mind and heart. Look, I'm seeking to be super righteous. That was the Pharisee's goal. I own land, and I've been blessed by God because of my righteousness. And certainly others who are not as righteous aren't as blessed because of their unrighteousness. And and thus, righteousness could be an excuse for love of money. Not only that, it was really easy to mask the, the love of wealth and money with religious-sounding words and religious-sounding teaching and phrases. And so some Pharisees were lovers of money, and that's the case we have here. And one of the common critiques in rabbinic writings of lovers of money were that they, they didn't care for the poor. So loving money often showed up in their thought world in not caring for the poor. Noting that little detail is important because that's actually going to show up in what follows here. The very story that Jesus is going to tell has to do with um, not caring for the poor. So these Pharisees are scoffing at him because they don't agree with his teaching about money and righteousness and all of that. Verse 15, Jesus responds to them and he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of the people, but God knows your heart. So Jesus' initial critique of them is basically, you guys are the ones that try to present yourself as righteous and make people believe that you're all righteous. But guess what? God actually knows your heart. So you say what you want. You scoff how you want because God actually knows what's going on beneath the surface. Because that which is highly esteemed among people is detestable in the sight of God. Uh, Jesus seems to be suggesting that your understanding of wealth, your understanding of righteousness, your understanding of God is all mixed up. And, and thus, what is actually valued among people isn't valued by God. In fact, it's detestable in the sight of God. That's important because really where this whole thing is going to end up at is dealing with the values that God has towards people and wealth and money and poverty and all of that. And so we're going to look at what really is highly esteemed among God. Then in the next three verses, Jesus continues his critique and his response to the Pharisees. But what he says isn't immediately clear for how it connects with his critique. And so we got to think carefully about these next few sentences that Jesus speaks. Let me read you verses 16 and 17, and then we're going to just kind of work down through some of the details there. He says this, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John came. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. What exactly is he getting at? How does it fit in the context here? Well, let's work down through what he actually says and see if we can't figure that out, at least get a little clarity on it. First thing to note is in verse 16, there's really no main verb, which is not uncommon. It just means we have to supply one. The one supplied here is the word proclaimed. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John came. So they supply this main verb, were proclaimed, and that, that works. The key thing we have to make sure we understand is that whatever verb we supply, we don't make Jesus out to say that the law was in effect until John came 
And now it doesn't matter anymore. And the reason we have to be sure of that is because verse 17, right? The very next sentence that Jesus says is that the law still matters. What the law teaches still matters. The values that the law speaks still pertain. So we have to think clearly about Jesus' point. The law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, was taught or proclaimed until John, and then something more came on the scene. And that something more is the kingdom of God that's proclaimed and embodied in Jesus. So it's not that the law passes away, but that the law culminates in something more, something greater. But as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, the gospel of God, the kingdom is actually witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so, so the law and the prophets doesn't just vanish or cease to have any value the moment the kingdom of God comes. It's that the law and the prophets is culminating in the kingdom of God. And thus, whatever the kingdom of God teaches is going to be consistent with the law and the prophets and vice versa. Now, what is this last little line at the end of verse 16, where he says, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it? What does that mean? What, what does he mean by forcing his way into it? Well, the verb here is biazetai in Greek, and it could mean everyone is forcing his way into it, as here, pressing his way into it or something like that. If that's the case, then everyone has to be kind of understood just generically, since it's not the case that everyone's forcing their way into it in Jesus' day. There are crowds that are coming to Jesus, but there are people that are opposed to it as well. So maybe it means forcing his way into it, and Jesus just means everyone sort of generically. It could be, as some translations take it, uh, it could mean everyone uses force against it. Like, oh, there's opposition or hostility to it. And again, this doesn't seem to be totally accurate. There are some people that are opposed to it, but there are also huge crowds that are flocking to it. So those are very common translations, and they, they kind of work, but they don't seem to be 100% accurate. One commentator, Garland, argues that it should be understood not as a middle voice verb, like, forcing his way into it or using force against it, but as a passive voice verb. Um, and then that would mean that everyone is pressed into it. Well, if that were the case, um, we, we have to then think specifically about, well, we got to make sure we don't think, oh, so people are being forced into it, right? Like um, they're being forced against their will because that wouldn't work very well. But Garland points out how Luke actually uses a version of this verb elsewhere, both in Luke and in Acts, to mean urge. So, for example, Luke 24, 29, strongly urged them. Well, that verb translates strongly urged is the same verb here. Um, or Acts chapter 16, 15, it's just translated urged. In fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word, biazetai, is used to mean urged pretty consistently. That's the way it was used. And so and that makes good sense here. And I think Garland really, you know, points out some important things for us to consider. And it, it, it fits here. It works really well. Like, um, if you read the end of it, since that time, the gospel of God is being preached and everyone is being urged to enter it. Everyone is being compelled and urged and called and persuaded to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, if that's what Jesus is saying, that makes sense of the preceding context. 
He's preaching, he's teaching, he's calling people to listen to him. The Pharisees now are mocking him and scoffing him. And, and Jesus is saying, look, I'm calling them and you and everybody to enter into the kingdom of God. I'm urging people to enter into it. But even though that's the case, verse 17, um, even though that's the case, doesn't mean the, the values of the law are just going to go away, right? So he says, verse 17, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to, to fail. Just because the kingdom of God is coming in Jesus, just because people are being urged to enter into it, doesn't abolish the law, doesn't nullify it. It culminates it like childbirth culminates pregnancy, but it doesn't nullify it or abolish it. It actually fulfills it and brings it to its intended destination. And in fact, the very values of the law still pertain. There's still wisdom there. And that's where the, the, the parable that's going to show up uh, seems to, to head in that direction, showing here's the values of the law and you should listen to them. Then in verse 18, there's this random statement, and no one really knows how it fits. All right, so let's just be honest about that. So Jesus has just said that he is bringing the kingdom. He's urging people to enter into it. That doesn't nullify the law, that it actually fulfills the law. And then verse 18, we get, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And no one really knows like how that fits your life. Where did that come from, right? The two most common options are, here's an example of a binding command from the law that um, they were known to set aside. Like, not only do you guys not listen to the law and are lovers of money, but the same is true with regard to marriage, right? Like, And maybe that's what Jesus means here, and that's how it fits. Or another common option is, well, this is an analogy. Just as marriage is permanent, so the law is permanent, right? I don't really know. It doesn't seem like any any scholar really totally knows. Uh, perhaps the first option is best, like as an example of a binding command. Um, but it's just one of those things where we're left kind of scratching, scratching our head and aren't totally sure exactly how this fits in here. But let's not lose the overall flow of thought um, and point just because verse 18 is a little confusing. These guys have scoffed at Jesus' teaching about God, money, and stuff. And Jesus is saying, look, you're not even listening to the law, yet alone listening to me and entering the kingdom of God. That's really the point. And in fact, other Jews had acknowledged that listening to the law would lead people to use their money differently. Here's, here's from uh, 4 Maccabees chapter 2, right? This is an intertestamental writing of the Jews that indicates that listening to the law actually would cause you to use your money differently. It says this, 4, 4 Maccabees chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, Thus, as soon as one adopts a way of life in accordance with the law, even though a lover of money, one is forced to act contrary to natural ways and to lend without interest to the needy, to cancel the debt when the seventh year arises. If one is greedy, one is ruled by the law uh, through reason so that one neither gleans the harvest nor gathers the last grapes from the vineyards. Note the phrase that starts that. Uh, adopts a way of life in accordance with the law and lover of money. This is very similar to Jesus' point. If you Pharisees were really interested in following the law, you wouldn't mock my teaching for putting money in its place. If you would actually learn to listen to the law, you would actually listen to me. 
because the law actually has a lot to say about how to treat the people who are poor. And those who follow the law will treat the poor differently. And so Jesus then goes on to tell a parable about uh, really the treatment of the poor. And then it culminates with listening to the law. So all of this is tied up together here in this section. Here's the parable beginning in verse 19. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. Jesus is emphasizing how well off this guy is. He dresses in purple. Purple was the color of royalty and nobility. It was extremely expensive. So he's showing off his wealth, all right, by dressing in purple every day, all the time, habitually. He's showing off his wealth. Look how much money I have. I can dress in purple. Not only that, he's dressed in fine linen. This is actually a little bit humorous. Uh, The word fine linen is from a Semitic word that typically referred to the best, most expensive cloth money could buy. And that cloth was regularly used for undergarments. In other words, this guy has the most expensive outer robes, purple, and he's got the best underwear too. He's got it all, right? That's the idea. And he's enjoying himself, it says, um, in splendor every day. So he's living it up. He's got the best food. He has the best company. He has all the best stuff. He is uh, well-stocked living in splendor. This guy is super well off. Now, the contrast with the next guy in the parable couldn't be more stark. Verse 20, and there was a poor man named Lazarus. This is interesting, too. This is the only parable of Jesus where we get a character's name. Jesus names the poor man so that he's not just some random guy. He he has a name. He's a person, and his name is Lazarus. And he was laid at this rich man's gate. He's covered with sores. He's longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man. So he would just be happy with table scraps, right? So look how bad off this guy is. He was laid at this man's gate, which means friends brought him and set him down. So presumably he's not capable of moving or working or walking on his own. He's covered in sores. So he's got some sort of bed sores or whatever all over him. He's got, um, in fact, we learn later that his sores in some sense are attracting dogs. So he's covered in sores. He's apparently lame. He's starving, just wishing he could eat some table scraps. And as we noted, Jesus gave him a name, and it's a good name. It's Lazarus, and it means uh, the one whom God helps. But it sure doesn't look like right now that God is helping him. He's in a bad situation. Not only that, the verse goes on and says, not only that, the dogs also were coming and licking his sores. So he's got sores all over him, and there's dogs that are coming and licking his sores. Now, we need to try to figure out, is this a bad thing or a good thing? The phrase translated not only that is literally the Greek word Allah, which means but. It's a strong contrast. There's a couple different words that often get translated but in the New Testament. This one is emphasizing strong contrast. So, but the dogs are coming and licking his sore. The point seems to be that the rich man didn't even notice him or give him table scraps, but the dogs at least came and cared for his wounds. 
That seems to be the point. The dogs stand in contrast to how the rich man has treated him. These are either stray dogs in town or perhaps the rich man's guard dogs. Dogs weren't kept as pets among the Jews. Uh, there tended to be mangy, dirty street dogs, and they were considered unclean by Jews. But, strong contrast, these dogs lick his sword, which seems to suggest that, that their activities, in contrast to the rich man's, and so these unclean dogs gave more attention and more care to Lazarus than, than the rich man did. Now, we're going to fast forward in the parable then, to the death of these two characters. So verse 22, now it happened that the poor man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's arms. Some translations, Abraham's bosom. He's carried to, to Abraham's lap, in other words, and he's carried by angels. And the rich man also died and was buried. And so Lazarus is carried to Abraham's lap. His poverty didn't keep him from Father Abraham. This is a picture of of Lazarus going to paradise, all right? So he's going to be with Abraham in paradise. The rich man, well, he was just buried. He was just buried. In fact, he doesn't even end up in paradise. He doesn't end up with Abraham. Verse 23, and in Hades, he, the rich man, raised his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and saw Lazarus in his arms. So this rich man is in Hades. He's suffering. He sees Lazarus sitting in Abraham's lap being cared for by Abraham. Um, and so here, Hades is used not just in the generic sense of the realm of the dead, but as a place of suffering and torment. So this is the place of the unrighteous dead here. And Lazarus is actually now well off with with Abraham, and so their fortunes have been completely reversed, all right? Now, remember, before we move on, this is a parable. Don't take this literally, right? Like, this doesn't tell us the literal topography of the afterlife. The point is, is that the rich man actually recognizes Lazarus. Notice that. He, he sees Abraham, and he sees Lazarus, and he recognizes him which means that he had noticed him at his gate, at least at some point during his life. And so he is in agony, suffering in Hades. And verse 24, he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Notice what he does. The rich man calls out to Abraham, and he wants Lazarus to come and serve him. In life, he didn't give a thought to caring for Lazarus, and in death, he still expects Lazarus to wait on him. Abraham, you've got the authority. You just tell him what to do, and he can come and serve me. And he calls Abraham father, Father Abraham, emphasizing his racial heritage as if somehow his Jewishness was enough for him to get what he wants, and what he wants is for Lazarus to come and take care of him. How does Abraham respond in the parable? Verse 25, Abraham said, child, which is gracious of Abraham. He's, this is a term of endearment and affection, and so it's gracious of Abraham. Child, he says, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he's being comforted here, and you're in agony. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set, so that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able, nor will any people cross over from there to us. And so Abraham says, it's just not possible. You're getting what you deserved. Lazarus is actually getting what he deserved. He's getting comfort. You're suffering. And it's just not possible because there's a great chasm between us and you. And notice what he says. He says, those who want to go over to you from here can't. That's interesting. Did Lazarus actually want to go help the rich man? Was he like, Abraham, I, I should really go help him. He's in agony. Did, did Lazarus want to go? We don't know. But it's just an interesting phrase, the way it's told. So that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able to, nor will anyone be able to cross over from there to us. So there's no way to get across the chasm. Well, the rich man replies and says, Well, then I request of you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment as well. So the rich man now is like, oh, but what about my family? If I can't be helped, at least help my family. So now he wants Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers. Like he still thinks Lazarus should wait on him, which is just fascinating. And he's still certain this guy is lower than him in some regards and should be his errand boy. But at least he has enough heart to care for his family. He wants to see his family avoid the torment he's having. Abraham replies, verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Well, as the story moves to, towards its climax, now we return to the topic that initiated, listening to the law and the prophets. The law tells them the way of life. The law tells them how to treat people like Lazarus. The law tells you know, people the path of righteousness. In fact, Psalm 1 actually celebrates that the law will lead to a good outcome in life. And so the rich man should know that they just need to listen to the law. And Abraham now tells them, they just need to listen to the law. It will guide them in the way they should go. But the rich man replies to Abraham, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And so now the rich man attempts to argue and barter with Abraham. He's still got to send Lazarus. My family will listen if someone comes back from the dead. Don't miss the implication. Don't miss maybe a little bit of the allusion to, because Jesus knows what's coming. If someone comes back from the dead, they will listen. Don't miss that. Jesus, it seems, is alluding to what he knows is about to happen, that he's going to come back from the dead. And Jesus knows, look, if they don't listen to the law, it really won't matter if someone comes back from the dead. But Abraham said to this guy, verse 31, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So now we've come full circle. If someone listens to the law, they'll listen to Jesus. And if they don't care about the law, they won't listen to Jesus, even when he rises from the dead. And so this whole parable illustrates this issue of love of money and living for money and listening to the law and entering the kingdom of God and listening to Jesus. All of it is tied together. And if someone actually listened to the law, they wouldn't be a lover of money. If they're a lover of money, that means they're not listening to the law, which is why they don't listen to Jesus and they scoff at him. It all fits together here in Luke chapter 16. 
And as we kind of wrap up this section, just a couple little implications or reflections for us to think about. The first one is the wisdom of the law. And don't miss how this parable, as fascinating as it is, is initiated out of Jesus' comments about listening to the law, and it culminates in Jesus' comments about listening to the law. And so listening to the law is really central here. Now, that makes sense because he's speaking to Pharisees who valued the law and claimed to be following it. And Jesus is actually challenging them on that, that you're not really doing it. But in doing so, he reminds us of the wisdom of the law. The law was given to give really a wise path of life. And the law is celebrated in Psalm 1 or Psalm 19 or Psalm 119. It's celebrated for the wisdom that it gives. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, like, you guys have to keep this law because then all the nations around you will say, look at their wisdom and their understanding. And the law had tons to say about caring for the poor, about the gleaning laws and the, the, the needy and the oppressed and the widows and the orphans. The law had tons to say about that. And it reminds us of one of God's chief values. And that chief value, second reflection here, is caring for the poor. That the law has tons of wisdom for life. And part of that wisdom says God's people need to be people who have a different view of the poor rather than just letting them be cast off, sitting at a gate, completely overlooked and ignored while, while you know, we live lavishly and in splendor. We got to think about how we could use our resources to care for the needy and the poor, to use our wealth according to God's values, part of which is caring for the poor. And so this section of Luke chapter 16 reminds us of how important this value is to God and that we should listen to him. We should listen to his wisdom in the law. We should listen to his wisdom through Jesus. We should listen to his wisdom in the New Testament letters. God's values with regard to money and wealth include caring for the poor.